Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Super Bowl winning NFL head coach Mike Shanahan. Alright, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, we sit down with a three-time Super Bowl champion. He's also the most winning coach in Denver Broncos history. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Shanahan. Mike, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me on, Brett. Now, this is great. I love when we get to the NFL. I love getting outside of my arena a little bit. You're a three-time Super Bowl champion. I'm sure you've had plenty of influence on a on a lot of young NFL coaches who had the biggest influence on Mike Shanahan. Oh, that's a good question. I said I think you know you have so many guys that uh, you look back on and you think about uh, how they influence you. So I've had a bunch of them. I think one of the first coaches that I had that uh, really influenced me a lot was Daryl Mudrow when I went to Eastern Illinois University. We were in a program that didn't have a winning record in 17 years. And then we hired this head coach. He hires me as offensive coordinator. Had won a lot of games. In fact, won over 200 games at the collegiate level. But when I got a chance to spend some time with him, uh, when he inherited that team that N1, didn't have a winning season in 17 years, he was able to, in one year, turn it around and win a national championship. That doesn't happen very often. And, that was a guy that uh, had such a high standard and high expectations. It was a great experience for me. It is interesting, too, because, you know, you get asked that all the time. And people expect you to throw out a, you know, whoever, big name. And you, and you, you know, some of, our, some of the places we come from, our roots, guys that you would never think were big influences on you are the most impactful. Uh, I find that across the board in all sports, it's it's a really interesting thing. Mike Shanahan, growing up, you grew up in Illinois. Uh, I want to hear about your childhood. What was Mike, <laughs> little Mike? Well, to be honest with you, uh, obviously, I you know grew up in the Chicagoland area, East Line High School. Very influenced by my coaches in high school. Uh, played football, basketball, and track in high school, and. I wanted to coach because of the influence that these coaches had on my life. And uh, so when I went in the, uh, into college, I wasn't sure if I wanted to coach uh, college football or high school football. Never thought about pro football uh, until I got the opportunity later on in my career. Um, but, you know, it was uh, the starting point of being influenced by some very strong personalities of people I really respected. So that you had the coaching bug early because I know you're a quarterback in high school. I was reading about it. I was doing my homework and you ran the wishbone in high school. You took that on to Eastern Illinois and uh, give me a little transition. You go from high school football, college football. How was that for you? Well, to be honest with you, when I did run the wishbone in high school, our high school coach, you know, he, he took it from the college coaches. And I think it, it was Texas at that time. And we kind of worked it on the off season and we opened up against a team that was ranked number four in the state. It was Hinsdale South at the time. And this is in, you know, this is way back when, and all of a sudden uh, we opened up and they didn't know how to stop us. So, you know, we went up and down the field 
and, and beat a team that was very good. And I knew at that time that how good our coaches were because they actually had no idea how to stop it. So I felt uh, very fortunate at that time to be around some good coaches, and uh, they influenced me very early. 1972, and I would say probably life-changing event, um, you rupture your kidney on the field. And, and was there a priest that came out to give you your last right? I mean, you almost died on the field. Um, what, actually what was happened, that like? What actually happened there, to be honest with you, is that I just knocked the wind out of me. And uh, so, you know, actually finished the uh, scrimmage we were having. Then when I went into the uh, locker room, I was urinating blood, and I knew, knew that wasn't a good sign. So I went and talked to the trainer, uh, and then I just took off. I went back home, and then I kept on urinating uh, uh, or throwing up and uh, urinating blood, so I knew that wasn't a good sign. So my roommate called an ambulance, and they picked me up and got me to the hospital, and I was very lucky because uh, – um, that's where they gave me the last rites because my heart had stopped beating. And luckily, luckily enough, after about 30 seconds, uh, it came back and uh, I made it. So that was, that was, that was the good, good part of the story. How about that college athlete though? You're, you're laying there. I mean, you go through what you just went through. So your life's going to change. All of a sudden you're not going to be playing football anymore. And what what is that like just mentally for you that age? You're probably what at the time twenty years old. Yeah, not what really hurt is that I couldn't play football anymore. I thought I could maybe come back at least try to punt. And when you lose a kidney, they're not going to let you come back and play. Not at that time, anyhow. I think you can today, but back then, you know, if you did lose a kidney, they would not let you play. So then I started coaching early. So I was like a. Uh, uh, not a graduate assistant, a student assistant my first year because it was like my junior year uh, in college at that time. Then the next year, I was more of a, a graduate assistant. So, you know, I just started my coaching a lot earlier than expected. And coaches gave me a lot of responsibility since I was obviously very disappointed that I couldn't play anymore. So I got the coaching bug a little bit early, and I, I started out my career doing things a little different than most people would graduate from college, get married to, to Peggy. And the thing I want to know is how do you hook up with Barry Switzer at Oklahoma? I, I want to hear the well, story. <laughs> it's urban legend, Mike. How do, you, how do you go from Eastern Illinois to University of Oklahoma? That's, that's a pretty good question. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> uh, my senior year, we had, uh, coaches that we were interviewing for the head coaching job and John Constantinos came in from North Carolina state and uh, Billy Michaels, Barry Switzer's uh, roommate uh, in college and the offensive line coach with uh, Barry at that time, he came in to interview. So I had a chance to show these guys around. I got a chance to know them. And then after the change um, uh, was made and Billy Michaels didn't get the job, John Constantinos did get the job. I uh, kept in contact with Billy Michaels and asked him if there was a chance that I could get onto the staff in some way at Oklahoma. And um, we were, I was fortunate to have Michael Mullally, who was the athletic director, who was a fundraiser at Oklahoma as well. So with Billy Michael and Mike Mullally, 
uh, being involved with uh, Oklahoma in general with the athletic department, I got in to uh, run the dormitory with another fellow named Gerald O'Dell. And that's how I started out. So I just hanging around, being in the dormitory, and just, you know, obviously not working for anything, but doing the job that they actually do in the dorm with the, all the athletic players because they had an athletic dorm. I got a chance to get involved with Barry at that time, and he's been a great friend ever since. You go from there, you head to, uh, well, I'll tell you, Switzer must have seen something in you. Um, you end up winning a national championship there. And you head on to Northern uh, Arizona, NIU, for the 76-77 season. You're the running back coach. So now you're officially on staff, and, and you know, you're known in, in your later years as an offensive coordinator and then eventually, obviously, as a head coach. But take me through those early days, and, and what's it like? Young coach, uh, you know, big-time college pro. What, what's that like? Well, first of all, how I got to Northern Arizona, where Joe Salem uh, was the head coach, and he was in the passing attack, and obviously that's coming from a running attack. And Joe had met Barry at the Fiesta Bowl because we had played there, uh, you know, my last year there. And uh, Joe was asking Barry, he says, hey, do you have, a, you have any coach on your staff that might be interested in being uh, a coach with uh, the Lumberjacks, Northern Arizona? And Barry said, no, I can't think of any. And Case Switzer, his wife, said, well, do you think Mike might be interested in a job like that? And he said, you know, I never thought of Mike would be. He might. So that's how I was hired at Northern Arizona, really for Barry Switzer's wife recommending me to uh, Joe Salem. And so I talked to him after the end of the season, and I got with him, which really kind of helped me in the passing game because with Oklahoma being obviously with the wishbone and having the great success that they had with Barry Switzer through all his years, I had a chance to grow at Northern Arizona for only being there for a year, uh, learning Don Coriel's offense with Joe Salem. We actually went to the playoffs that year. And then that got me an opportunity to go back to Eastern Illinois and be the coordinator with Daryl Moodrow, where he won the national championship, which opened up a couple doors for me, like Minnesota and Florida along the way. Yeah, that was 78, and and at this point, you are the offensive coordinator at Eastern Illinois, your alma mater. Uh, You win the national championship. At this point, you're kind of rising in the ranks. You're you're kind of a rising star now in college football. You mentioned you went on to uh, Minnesota and to Florida, and obviously your big break comes in 84. Uh, You go to the Broncos, wide receiver coach, your your first gig in the NFL – you're coaching under Dan Reeves in, in Elway's second year. Uh, take me to, through the pro side. You've done the college side now. First shot at, at the big time. How was that? Well, it was really a lot of fun because I had never thought about, you know, going to pro football. And I had, I had interviewed with Marion Campbell um, maybe a few weeks before Dan Reeves asked me to interview with him. And with Marion Campbell, I, I talked football for eight to ten hours with Philadelphia at that time. And with Dan Reeves, we didn't talk football at all, X's and O's. He just wanted to kind of get to know me as a person. And he talked a little bit, I think maybe one play we talked about. But when I had the opportunity to come to Denver and um, Dan says, hey, I'm going to hire you as a receiver coach, but I'm going to take over his, take over the quarterbacks. But I'm not going to uh, hire a quarterback coach. And if you can prove with you coaching the receivers that you can handle the quarterbacks, I'll give them to you the next year. 
And uh, Dan did that. So as I was coaching receivers, actually, even my first year, I got involved with coaching the quarterbacks. And obviously a great opportunity to coach a guy like John Elway at that time. Yeah, Elway, Elway was in his second year when he got there. And 86, you know, everybody, I'm sure you, you haven't heard this question before, but the 86, the drive, they call it, in the AFC Championship game. I got a buddy in Cleveland, and he's a huge Browns fan. And he told me, he goes, <laughs> he goes, you get Shanahan on the show, ask him. He said, during that drive, he said, why were the Browns backpedaling the entire time? <laughs> I tell you, anytime you lose a game, there's always you always look back and you wonder why. But I always think about the one opportunity we had, like a third and thirteen or fifteen, I think it was fifteen, and we got a silent snap count. We got Steve Watson in motion. He's coming on uh, from one side of the formation to the other, and our center snaps it and hits Steve Watson in the rear end, and it deflects off his rear end, and Elway catches it about a foot off the ground. He was still able to keep control of the ball and throw it downfield. And then we got the first down. So, you know, you got to be so fortunate to get a couple of breaks like we did, but we were able to, you know, get Cleveland three years in a row. And I think that's what was really tough with them is the way we won those games. Um, so consistently over the three year time frame. And you're, and you're coaching on some pretty big-time teams, 86, 87. You go to the Super Bowl. Uh, you're the offensive coordinator. And then you get your first shot. And this was, this was an interesting read for me, uh, your time in, uh, in Raider Nation. And, and we just had Rick Meyer on the program recently. He talked about it. And he said, Booney, he said, I played against the Raiders. It might have been the worst experience of my life. He said, when I played for him, Raider Nation – I looked at it from a different perspective, but Al Davis takes notice of the success you're having in, uh, in Denver. And uh, he hires you first time uh, you're getting an opportunity to be the head coach. And from a baseball perspective, I always look at it, you know, I see these first time managers in the big leagues and it depends on the gig you get, but but I see these guys come in sometimes, and and the organization might say, "Hey, you, you can bring one coach with you, but we're gonna, you know, we're gonna decide on the other three or the other four. Now, baseball and footballs, it's apple, and, you know, apples and oranges. But I'm interested. First time NFL coach. This is your first time uh, being the head head coach. Were you able to bring in all your own guys, or because of your tenure and your status at that time? they pick some of your coaches down there? Well, actually, I, I brought three coaches in at that time. And it was Alex Gibbs, uh, Nick Nicolau, and a guy named Jack Stanton at that time who was uh, on the defensive side of the ball. And Al did pick the rest of those coaches. And obviously, I accepted the job, so I knew what I was getting into. Uh, but that was a different situation for me. But to be honest with you, that year, we went into the last game of the season. We were seven wins and eight losses, and we were playing Seattle. And if we beat Seattle, we win the AFC West, and we go to the playoffs. We lose 43-37, to 37, and it's, it's nip and tuck the whole game. And we got a chance to do something that hadn't been done for a while. So I thought we made some strides, um, but obviously we didn't reach the, you know, the uh, playoffs. And the next year, we start out one and three. And I do get fired, and eventually I go back to Denver uh, a couple games later, 
and Denver goes to the Super Bowl that year. So I, I actually coached one year in four games, and I was gone as a head coach and got a chance to go back to Denver to a Super Bowl team. And then two years later, we lost in the AFC Championship. So we still had some success uh, when I did come back to Denver because we had a pretty good football team. And that was you were at a pretty you were at a pretty big time. That was that was when Bo was coming on the scene. You had Marcus Allen. You had that whole Al Davis. I don't know what it was. It was some kind of show no, going was, on there. It, it was interesting because one time on the sideline, I'm I, I obviously on the sideline and recalling the plays, and I got a message that uh, hey, uh, Al wants Marcus. I mean, he wants Bo Jackson in. So I had to leave. I kept Mar- Marcus Allen because Marcus would help Bo with the plays. So I moved Marcus over the fullback and Bo over the tailback. And Allen asked me, he says, Hey, call He said, I-, I don't want Marcus in there. I said, Well, Marcus's not in there. I said, I can't put in Bo because Marcus is going to help Bo because he hasn't been with the offense and doesn't know the system inside out. So that was a little bit different situation. But it was an experience I had with Bo because it was very easy to coach. But, uh, Marcus was a guy that knew the whole offense and could help anybody in any situation. So that was a unique experience at that time. So you leave, you leave Oakland. Al Davis won't pay you. That that seems to be a, another nightmare that you didn't need at the time. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, and I just well, he, you know he, I, he got mad at me at that one uh, because I donated the $250,000 that he was supposed to pay me in the Oakland school district. So I was told by a lot of his friends that probably bothered him more than anything. Cause he got more static from the Oakland school district about not getting the money that, uh, I said I would give him. Uh, <laughs> and so anyway, they gave him a hard time for a while. Talk to me a little bit about the head coaching versus you've, you've done a lot of coordinating and up until that point, you're the head guy. I've seen it in baseball where I've had some really good bench coaches through the years. And, uh, you know, once again, baseball, football, completely different animal. But but I've seen a lot of bench coaches. They go to the head coaching uh, spot. And, and, you know, I realize watching that they really are a number two guy and they're great at what they do. They get the number one spot and they're not. I've seen some number one guys. You put them in that number two spot. They can't handle that. Like I said, baseball, completely different than football. But what, what was the biggest difference for you? What was the biggest challenge from going from coordinator, quarterback coach, running back coach to head coach? Well, I actually – my, I think it was my last year at Eastern Illinois. I went to a clinic in Chicago, the Hyatt at the Rosemont, and I had Bill Walsh talking. And, uh, you know, now, you know, I had lost my kidney. I'm more of a graduate assistant type coach. And he said something at that clinic that always stood in my mind that if you want to stay a head coach, I don't care if it's the high school level, the college level, or the pro level, you better be able to coach every position. Because you're going to lose some great coaches while, you, while you're the head coach. And if you do and you don't know the uh, total game, then it won't be long and you'll be fired. And so that was some great advice I had by just going to a clinic my senior year in college, listen to a great guy like Bill Walsh who took pride in knowing all the different positions. That really stood out in my mind at that time is to, if you want to stay as a head coach, 
you better know the complete game because if you lose coaches, you don't learn it, you're going to be fired. You head back to the Broncos, 89-91. Back, to, You go to the Super Bowl in, in 89, you get – I remember that Super Bowl. You got whooped by the 49ers. Am yeah, I we got whipped bad. 55 <laughs> to 10 to be exact. Yeah, you know, can't get beat worse than that. Yeah, that was hard. That was hard. That was almost 14 (laughs) points every quarter. I do remember that. Then you head to uh, the team that just whooped you after the 91 season. You go back and and you go to work for Eddie DeBartolo. Uh, Seifert's the head head guy with the 49ers. You're the offensive coordinator. Classy organization. And uh, what was it like going going to that 49ers uh, at that stage in your career? You end up winning a Super Bowl there. Yeah, it was really kind of different because um, we had played Buffalo. We were, I think, we were twelve and four that year, but we lost down in the AFC Championship game. And then, of course, you know they lose in the Super Bowl. But I got fired at that time from Dan Reed. So I and uh, I was being interviewed by uh, Pittsburgh at that time and uh, San Francisco. And I decided to go to San Francisco because of the depth of their team, the type of offense they were running. I thought it'd be a great learning experience for me. And they had won four Super Bowls in a nine-year time frame. So I thought that that would be something that would be, you know, very good for me. And it wound up being very good for me because I, I learned so much uh, from the organization because all the success they did have. And Eddie DeBarlo was such a great, I mean, a, a great owner. George Seifert at that time was the head coach, and um, I just thoroughly enjoyed being uh, his coordinator. And we had a you know we had a very very talented football team, and so it was just a great experience for me to pick that offense up and study the things that they had done. And they had taped every meeting, so I had a chance over uh, a three year time frame to look back at what every coach had been teaching the players. And so I got a chance to learn the system pretty quick, which is great experience for me. 49ers versus the Raiders. Uh, Myth or truth, the Elvis Gerback, Al Davis scene, uh, (laughs) throwing the football at Davis on the side. See, you you mentioned when you talked about Al Davis and how interesting it was your time in Oakland. The only only thing that comes to mind for me is I was – I played in Cincinnati in the mid-'90s, and I played for an owner by the name of Marge Schott. So when you talk about eccentric owners and stuff, you know, stuff going on a little bit different, I can kind of relate to what you're talking about, uh, obviously in yeah. different ways, but, but definitely eccentric. Is there any truth to that, that, that Gerback threw the football at Al Davis? No, there's total truth to that. In fact, it was in a 92 season season. We were, uh, obviously playing the Raiders and, uh, you know, we're, you know, we're warming up at about the five or 10 yard line. And, uh, you know, we're just going through our, you know, pregame routine. And Al's about on the, our 35-yard line. So he's only about 25, 30 yards from where, we're, you know, we're throwing the ball or running the ball. And so I told Elvis, I said, Elvis, I want you to throw a drop back. And if you happen to hit that guy in that white outfit, you won't disappoint me. So he drops back about five steps and he throws a go route. And I am, I'm scared to death because John Taylor is running the go route. I think he's going to run. And Al's looking at our, at our line. I think he's going to run over him. And Elvis throws the ball on the go route like he's going to hit John Taylor. And Al, thank God, dives out of the way because he's going to be run over. 
And then when he gets up, he uh, he flips me that middle finger or our you know our uh, <laughs> offense. <laughs> so he was he never came on the sideline again. I was told he never never came out on the field again after that game. And I know he didn't against all the times I had played him. I never saw him on the field again. So I'm not sure I should be proud of that because we could have really hurt him. But at the same time, when it did occur, I thought it was pretty funny. Oh, I would love that. That's something I would do. Just have a little bit of it, you know, a little bit of an F you back to him. Yeah, you're lucky it didn't hit yeah. you in the, in the mouth. You win Super Bowl 24. Everybody talks about that. Uh, Steve Young getting the monkey off his back. Uh, you know, his nemesis obviously was, was the Dallas Cowboys at that time. But I got two questions. What I was interested in, you know, everything was about Steve Young. We had mentioned you've been to, to, to three Super Bowls. Um, you hadn't won. You'd lost all three as a coach. But I always well, not think, only, man. We got embarrassed in all three, too. That, that's what was really disappointing. Yeah, but, Coach, you know what? There's not that many people that get to go to them. You know, I got to go to one World Series, and I got whooped by the Yankees. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I would have loved to go to five. Of course we want to win. But, you know, the people that, oh, you never won. It's like, hey, try getting there before you have an opinion. I always used to say that to people. Uh, but finally. Well, you're, you know, 100%, you're 100% right because that's. I mean, because all the, you know, all the playoff games you have to win to get there and how tough those teams are. I couldn't agree with you more. And the next three, you know, the next three times we get there, we win. So yeah. it all seemed to work out. But sometimes it, it doesn't happen that way. But it was really great that it did happen that way. You know, and so much is made, especially in the media, about today's, today's uh players and not only in the NFL, but all the, the major sports. And it's always talk, you know, these, these talk radio show hosts and, and fans always want to oh, how many rings does he have? People don't realize how hard it is to win a ring. I mean, you know, I played with some unbelievable players, best player I ever played with Ken Griffey Jr. Never got a chance to go to a world series, let alone win one. Uh, Dan Marino comes to mind, you know, when I was a kid growing up, Dan Fout, some of the great quarterbacks that never got there. So just to take it for granted, oh, he doesn't, you know, right place, right time. A lot of the times, obviously, you know, a lot of great players win a lot of rings. We're watching Brady do some ridiculous things at this stage of his career. But, you know, I laugh all the time where, oh, you never won the world series. Well, I got there and, and not too many people even get to get there. So, um, that was my question was, yeah, it was the monkey off the back for Steve Young. But did you feel a little sense of relief? Like it was your fourth Super Bowl, fourth's a charm. You finally won one. Was there any inner, you know, thoughts with yourself? Like, wow, finally I won one. You can win these things. No, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you finally get a chance to go back and you take advantage of it. And you know how precious it is to finally win it, to be able to put the ring on your finger. And then – you know, you understand on how hard it is because when you're there, like I said, three times and you felt very good about getting there, but you didn't take advantage of the opportunity, you know, they're few and far between. So when that happened in San Francisco, especially with Steve Young throwing six touchdown passes and the way we dominated the game, it felt awful good. Another layman question from the baseball player here. How much of a challenge is it for you or, or is it at all? Uh, dealing with a left-handed quarterback. I don't know if many people really think about that. Lefty quarterback, righty quarterback, 
it seems to me that it would throw so it's different and like for instance all of a sudden steve goes down you got your backup quarterback does that change things formations teach teach a layman layman uh football guy about lefty quarterback righty well to be honest with you i mean as a coach because you know when you're right at it you always been a quarterback yourself and I mean, it's hard to demonstrate anything left-handed, so you can't demonstrate. The only thing that I would do is a guy like Steve, because he took so much pride in being able to throw to the, I mean, spring out to the left or spring out to the right, and still be very, very accurate. Some people couldn't do that. So when you're dealing with a left-handed quarterback, nobody wanted you know to roll out to the right. So if you did your quarterback keeps or bootlegs or things along those lines, you would always have a tendency to go to the player's left or the player's right. And so it took a very talented guy like Steve Young, who had the athletic ability to flip his hips and actually be very accurate. I think that's really interesting when you say, you know, from a demonstration standpoint, my my entire career, if I talked to a left-handed hitter about hitting, I always was challenged because the world is different for a left-handed hitter, you know, in, in major league baseball. And, you know, Johnny Olerud was, a, was a teammate of mine for a long time. We used to talk endlessly about, you know, who we're facing tomorrow. And, and we'd, we'd laugh at each other. Cause I'm like, Johnny, he's going to pitch me completely different than he's going to pitch you. All those breaking balls that he's throwing, they're going away from me. They're going, in, they're going into you. So we really we really don't have anything to talk about right here. So maybe let's talk about some defense, but you're so right. It's just you demonstrate. It's like, wait a minute, he's left-handed. All right, I'm, I'm not talking on the right side of the ball right here. It's it's fascinating to me. That, that, that part of sports is really interesting. The intricacies. No, you're you're right, and of course, you know, for me not knowing baseball inside, I can't even imagine uh, what a disadvantage or advantage it is for a right-handed and a left-handed uh, batter relative to the pitching. I just, uh, I just kind of amazes me uh, the success that people have had uh, that could do both, you know, good bat both ways. Well, think about that. And they always say, you know, to, to the typical, you'd think, what, what is the ultimate hitting instructor? Oh, a switch hitter. Well, to me, it's completely the opposite of that. I'm going, wait a minute. This, this switch hitter, who's my hitting coach, when a left-handed pitcher was in the game, he'd hit right-handed. And when a right-handed pitcher's in the game, he'd hit left-handed. So how can he relate to me on any level? You know, the majority of big league pitchers, sure. 70% of the pitchers are right-handed, right? Well, it depends right. where I am in my career. But if I'm one of the main guys in the lineup, that opposing manager is not going to let me face a left-handed pitcher in a big situation. So basically, I'm always facing right-hand, unless it, you know, it's less than it's an exception. One of the elite guys, like a Randy Johnson, a Tom Glavin. Well, yeah, I'm going to face those guys because they're some of the best in the game. But your average lefty in the bullpen, I'm never going to get to face him. So, so <laughs> this this switch hitting guru, how can you relate with anything I'm talking about? Everything's breaking into you. Nothing's going away from you. It it, it blows my mind because everybody thinks, yeah, the switch the switch hitter would be the best teacher. No, he'd be the worst teacher because nobody could relate to him. That is that, that's great. That makes total sense. <laughs> All right, so you're back to Denver this time as a head coach. And wow, you're going to spend the next 
14 years in Denver. I uh, win Super Bowls in 87, 88. For you. Now you got three, uh, Super Bowl 32 and 33. Yeah, 97, bring, 98, yeah. Did you bring anything from your Niners experience winning that Super Bowl? I, I guess my question is you lose three and then you win three in a row. Did you learn anything from, from when you lost those Super Bowls, how you would do it different, especially as the head coach? No, it wasn't. You know, well, you know, how, how to do it or how, how not to do it. We did things totally different when we won the Super Bowl in 94 at San Francisco. Our preparation the relative to uh, when we put our game plan in, when we brought our families in. So the, the, the Niners had won four Super Bowls in nine years. So they had their plan down. If they did go to a Super Bowl, this is what we're going to do. And they took a lot of pressure off the coaches with the family and did things a certain way that I had not ever seen before. So when I got with them in 92, 93, 94, and we finally did get a chance to go to the Super Bowl, it was such a great experience for me because we did things that I had never done in Denver. So when I did get the opportunity to go to Denver, we did it exactly the same way we did at uh, uh, San Francisco, and it really paid, paid dividends for us. So you're in Denver. You have that unbelievable run. You take the 09 season off. Uh, this is the interesting part and the cool part for me. You take over the Redskins, and um, you get to you get to coach your son. Which, you know, I'm I'm finally getting to an age uh, where I can kind of appreciate stuff like that. I've got a son now playing in professional baseball in the minor leagues. But when I was a player, you know, I, I was really close with my grandfather who played a, a lot of years in the big leagues and, and obviously my dad who played a long time. But the look in his eye, uh, I don't know, as a player, I, I didn't really appreciate it. I thought, Dad, this is what I do. It's no big deal. But I could see the emotion on that side. Now I'm starting to, to realize what that feels like, watching your son uh, do what, you know, chase his dreams. And, and all of a sudden – you got a son on the sidelines with you. You're, you're the head coach. I don't know. Uh, to me, that would be unbelievable. How was it for you? The, the cool thing about it is Kyle was already established in the industry. He had, he had already been there, done that. So it's not like you were just bringing your son on. He had the, the resume to be there. But I couldn't imagine being on the sidelines and, and you know, the arguments you have with, with defensive coordinators, offensive coordinator. Now your son's an offensive coordinator, and you're still going to have an argument, but he's still your son. How was that uh, for you, family-wise? Well, to be honest with you, I didn't think it was ever going to happen because he had asked me if we could coach together someday. And I said, Kyle, I said, you know, I've, I've been in the game long enough to understand that, number one, unless you're a play caller, and uh, you prove yourself for you to be on my staff, I think would be a mistake. But I said, if, you, uh, if you're in charge of calling plays and you're an offensive coordinator and you can call plays and you're in the top five offense two years in a row or for two years with the team you're with, I said, that's the only time I would entertain uh, you being on my staff because nepotism would be the one word that would come out if you didn't accomplish that, 
And when he did accomplish that for two years in a row, and that was 2008 and 2009, when he was with Houston, when Gary gave him the opportunity to call plays and the offense should have that type of success, I felt like uh, bringing Kyle would help me because he did have that experience. And uh, I think it turned out well for both of us, even though it wasn't a perfect scenario in Washington. Yeah, because I got a chance. Uh, I got traded to the Reds in, in 94. And I remember getting a call from from Davey Johnson, who was the Red skipper at the time. And, he, you know, typical protocol when you get a new player. You probably did it many times as a head coach call, welcoming him to the team. And he, my dad happened to be at my house. And he said, hey, is your dad around? And I said, well, yeah, he's there. Davey had played against my dad, in the, you know, during their time. And my dad got off the phone and he says to me, he says, uh, Brett, Davey offered me the bench coach job for the Reds. And I'm, you know, 23 years old. And the first thing that goes yeah. through my mind is, are you kidding me? I'm going to Cincinnati and I'm going to have my dad on the staff. Man, I just want to get away. I want to be my <laughs> own man. I'll tell you, it ended up being one of the coolest years I've ever had. He, he went in, he was the bench coach. Uh, he was the, uh, he was so professional about it. Once we hit those doors and got to the clubhouse, it was player coach yet on an off day on the road. Uh, when, you know, when the game was over and we left, I could go to dinner with my dad and he separated it so well. And it made it such an enjoyable, uh, time for me. I, I really appreciated because I didn't think it was going to go that way. You know, I went back to my high school years, like I'm going to have dad tagging along, watching everything I do when I go out, when I don't go out. <laughs> it, it was quite the contrary. You know, I, my brother who is, who is very similar personality wise to my dad, my dad managed him in Cincinnati and they butted heads a lot. And, and I think it's because they're so alike. But uh, it's just sure. the dynamic. It, it was so cool. And, and when I think about you and Kyle, uh, you know, I, it, I can't help but bring back, you know, my time with my dad or, or me watching my son right now to, to ever coach my son. How cool that. I mean, I did it in Little League. I did it in travel ball. But at the highest level, I think it would be really cool. How did Kyle get started? Uh, did he always want to follow in your footsteps? Um, how was well, he as a kid? Did he follow you I around? Felt the same way. I felt the same way with Kyle as you felt with your dad. But talking about Kyle, uh, Kyle, uh, when he was a graduate assistant, he was wanting to get into uh, football. And he went with Carl Durrell over at UCLA, who is now the head coach at the University of Colorado. And he went there as a graduate assistant. And he actually was going there for football more than he was classes. And then he found out being a graduate assistant, at a place like UCLA, you have to go to class. You got to go to graduate school. And he's more interested in the football aspect. And after that year opportunity that he had as a graduate assistant, he went with John Gruden over at Tampa Bay for a couple of years. And that was uh, his introduction uh, with him as a part-time coach for two years before he went to Houston with Gary Kubiak as a full-time receiver coach uh, two years later. How do you find it now? How tough is it watching him coach? Do you do you almost watch his games and, and think through it with him? Like, oh, I would have done this. I would have done that. Does he give you a call and well, say, Pops, what do you think about this? Well, to be honest with you, it's actually fun for me since, you know, I, I'm 
retired, I'm not coaching, but you are able to do so much nowadays with the Zoom meetings where I, I can watch the offensive meetings, the defensive meetings, and I, you know, I still really enjoy football, so I can be involved without being there. So you can, you know, watch their practices, you can watch their games, and and at the same time, you're not there on a day-to-day basis, and you you know what they're going through, you know what he's going through, with wins and losses or injuries or whatever happens, and so it's been very enjoyable for me to watch him, you know, as both a a coordinator and as a head coach. uh, since I've been retired. Uh, you got a big date coming up soon in October. I believe it's October 17th against your favorite team, Broncos Raiders. Uh, <laughs> you're getting inducted. You're going into the ring of fame for the Denver Broncos. Uh, tell me about that phone call when you got it. I'll be honest with you. When I did get the phone call, you know, it's such a, you know, it's such an honor because, you know, being here for 21 years with the Denver Broncos, you know all the great players that have been here, the great coaches. And it didn't just happen overnight, you know. You give that to the start of the Broncos when they started and how long it took them to be successful and all the winning and losing that has been, that's gone into this organization before you're actually able to win something like the Super Bowl. So I felt, you know, it was such a such a great honor because to be in in the same uh, breath with all the great players and coaches that have been here, you feel like it's you know this you never even imagined it could happen to you. So it's something that I never even uh, dreamt about, and so to be actually get that honor is very special. And I think it's Kyle's bye week, so son's probably going to be on hand. You're going to have the whole family. Uh, Mike Shanahan, yeah, I was- really. Go ahead. No, I said, yeah, that was very nice. The Broncos doing it on Kyle's uh, open date so he can be there. But thanks so much for having me on. Is Al Davis going to be there? (laughs) No. (laughs) I'm not going that direction. I know Mark will be there. Mike Shanahan, I appreciate coming on. It was an honor having you on the Boone Podcast. And what we do each and every time at the end of the Boone Podcast is we bring in Dan for a question from the fans. Dan? Hi, Coach. How are you? Good, Dan. How about you? I'm doing all right. This one comes from Matt in Denver, and he wants to know this. Coach, you had Hall of Famer John Elway, but what I want to know, the top three QBs in your era that you coached against. Oh, coached against. Wow. Well, I've coached against all of them at one time, and I was with them, too. So anytime you deal with Elway and you're coaching against them or Montana, or Steve Young, or the Dan Marinos, or the, I mean, there's, there's so many guys. I don't, you know, Brett Favre. Uh, the thing that I've really enjoyed is the opportunity to be around these guys and get to know them on a day-to-day basis. I think everybody sees the talent level that you do have. But to watch these guys prepare and how important it is to these great players, is they just don't have athletic ability. They, they have the drive to make to separate themselves from the rest of the pack. That's what I've enjoyed. Coach, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it, sir. Thanks for having me on. Mailbag. All right, Booner, you know that sound, don't you? Uh, <laughs> say it. Something, say it. something to do with a mailbag, Dad. Mailbag. <laughs> 
right, Booner. Jeff from Cincy wants to know this. Booner, out of all the legends that you knew when you were a kid, who were you the most in awe of? Well, I'll tell you, as a kid, um, players didn't really phase me. I was so used to being around players. You know, I was, I mean, you know, not knowing what I know now. Uh, but as a kid, it was no big deal to be hanging out with Mike Schmidt and Steve Carlton and and uh, Rod Carew and Reggie Jackson and Pete Rose. That wasn't a big deal. That was just my dad's friends. I was probably in awe of someone we had on the program, the Philly fanatic. He was a real star. No, if I get to players that I was in awe of, not in awe but I just look to because I don't have a favorite player. You know, I learned a lot from my dad and, and not on the physical side, not on how to play baseball, but how to, how to be a professional, how to act, how to walk like a professional. So I learned that from my dad. But if I look to one player that I would emulate how to play the game right uh, to this day, it's got to be Pete Rose. Pete Rose. Okay, there we go. Now that's how you spend 10 minutes getting to one answer. Back to the mailbag we go. Megan from Hartford wants to know this. We know that you still keep in shape, Booner. You post all the pictures all the time. But when you do decide to break that strict diet of yours, what is your go-to cheat meal? In-N-Out Burger. Ooh. Yeah, I went from a 10-minute answer to a 10-second answer, Dan. Damn. Is there, a spe- is there a special order? Are you like burger with everything? Are you going animal style? What is the... uh? What's the typical no, booner? I, I won't break it down. I'll, I'll just go your basic double-double fries. I'll always... You know, I'll, I'll usually do it uh, protein style as well. So I won't get the bun, but I will order a second cheeseburger with the bun. Wow. Because if I'm cheating, I'm cheating. <laughs> Now that is what I like to hear. What else we like to hear was this podcast. And thank you all for listening for another great podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer of the Moon Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content all gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Please share the Moon Podcast with neighbors and friends. And make sure you subscribe to the Moon Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Moon Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Moon Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. Do it again soon. See ya.